0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, a managed DNS provider was taken offline. Yeah, you heard about Dine's big DDoS. We'll break it all down and tell you what happened. Then we'll beat the dead, dirty cow, answer your great questions, and cover some breaking news in our roundup on this week's episode of TechSnap. Everyone and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode two hundred and ninety of Jupiter Broadcasting's Weekly Systems Network and Administration Podcast. We stream this episode live on Thursday, October twenty seventh, two thousand and sixteen. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors: DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream. I'm really glad you asked. It's powered by Scale Engine. All of our downloads and live streams powered by ScaleEngine.com. Go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week for 290 weeks is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks Hello. For okay. All right. You know I want to see the shirt. You know it. It's oh, got... Yes. Yeah. Okay, I can See, I'm not arguing. I'm just explaining why I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a nice one, Alan. I like that. That fits you, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know.
1: This <laughs> my mother got it for me for my birthday.
0: I think she tuned in. I think she I think she knows how, how this goes. So this week is a big week. There's so much to cover. Everybody knows about the massive DDoS attacks, Dirty Cow, and other things that are going, plus great emails and a huge roundup. And the only other guy on the internet probably working harder than us this week is Mr. Brian Krebs. You ready to jump into some of this stuff? Yep. This is a so, big one.
1: Yes. All uh, right. So – uh, there was a giant DDoS attack on Dyn. If you're not familiar with Dyne or maybe didn't realize, uh, they're the they renamed themselves. Originally, they were called DynDNS.com, mm-hmm. right? And uh, if you were around the internet uh, 15 or so years ago, when everybody had dynamic IP addresses but ran little home servers anyway, everybody had you know some silly name at or one of the other hundred or so domains Heck they yeah, had. I still do. You know? Uh, yes, uh, I know. Uh, Dan still has you know his is like Dan Unix at home.net or something like that. Yeah, they used to have a, a bunch, bunch of, of great crazy domains you could pick
0: from too. And mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Yeah, so they had a bunch of those. Uh, but over the years, uh, their DNS infrastructure got bigger and eventually they started offering uh, domain registration but also uh, DNS hosting for other stuff. And they wanted to make more uh, money, I'm sure. Yeah, so they would host, so you could uh, use the DynDNS service with your own custom domain so that you know you could have you know, Alanju.com or whatever, uh, hosted with them and still use the Dyn DNS service and client with it. Yeah. So that you could, you know, have your modem dial out so you can have like home.alNJu.com or whatever to point to your home server and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and eventually they became quite a big DNS provider. Uh, I think partly because, you know, so many uh, administrators and so on had used them at home and, and knew about their service when it came time to say, pick the company to host the DNS for Twitter, GitHub soundcloud spotify reddit and a bunch of others uh they all chose dine Uh uh-huh uh so then on uh, friday of last week as we had a bit of an internet snow day as we call it (laughs) uh, i like that criminals on friday morning massively attacked dine a company that provides core internet services for like i said twitter github soundcloud spotify reddit and a bunch of other sites you know hundreds of thousands of other sites uh most of them smaller but uh causing outages and slowness to many of dynes customers now uh the biggest thing here is because it's your dns provider um the twitter website was up and running perfectly fine but if you can't resolve the name www.twitter.com to the website nothing's going to work well hover was ddosed what
0: th- three weeks ago or so yeah and, and we, we had the site. this site yeah and took down the jb site because
1: uh our servers were all up but hover's yep. dns wasn't resolving yeah, and so people could, not you know, basically DNS is kind of like the the phone book for the internet, right? You you can look up a name and find out what the the phone number is. Or in this case, you the suppose the two attacks is, are related.
0: Uh, to the hover one, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting awesome. that they're both DNS related. Uh, you know, probably could be, and it could absolutely not be. So mm-hmm. hard to say.
1: Uh, but in a statement, Dyn said uh, on the morning of October 21st, they received a globally distributed denial of service attack on their DNS infrastructure, uh, specifically targeting their servers on the East Coast uh, starting around 7.10 a.m. Eastern time, which is eleven uh, ten a.m. UTC. They say uh, DNS traffic resolved from East Coast name servers uh, locations are experiencing a service interruption during this time. Updates will be posted as information becomes available. Uh, they put up on their uh, status website. So uh, what's interesting is the attack on Dyn came just hours after Dyne researcher uh, Doug Mattery, uh presented a talk on DDoS attacks at the Dallas, Texas meeting of the ne- North American Network Operators Group, or NANOG, uh, which is basically a user group for ISPs uh, and people that you know run big networks and that's, routers and so on. That's um,
0: coincidental timing.
1: Uh, Mendori's talk, available on YouTube, is delves deeper into research that he and Brian Krebs teamed up on to produce the data behind the DDoS mitigation firm has a history of hijack story that he did back in September.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: So Krebs teamed up with the guy from Dying to do some research on uh, related to the the VDoS attack stuff. Um, And uh, shortly after that video goes up on YouTube, (laughs) Dying gets hit with a giant denial of service attack. Hmm, uh, could be a message. It could be related.
0: It could also be yeah. not. But again, when, the when I first heard about
1: the attack, I, I figured it was just you know a denial of service attack for the purpose of the denial of service attack or whatever. I didn't know that it had a, a link back to Krebs. <laughs> I'd
0: heard. I'd also heard, and this doesn't seem as feasible either, but. I had heard that it was response to Ecuador pulling Julian Assange's internet connection, and so it was. A, you're going to take his internet out. We'll take your internet yeah, out. Targeted the East Coast of the U.S.
1: I know. I don't understand their well, connection. If you believe the Ecuador thing was at the request of the U.S. or whatever, yeah. then maybe. It makes and
0: WikiLeaks sense. tweeted something out that kind of implied that it was their supporters running the DDoS. They they tweeted out asking people to stop the attack and that they'll get internet <laughs> services restored soon. But that could be, you know, that could also just be.
1: Well, part of it was the hype and the fact that people were saying, oh, the internet's down and everything's probably. It's like, actually, no, it's just a couple of websites that some people considered the internet. You know, if, if you ask some people, uh, some older people, you know, Facebook is the whole internet. Yeah, I didn't even notice this was going on, really. And then part of it was, uh, I, was I, I was offline. But because GitHub was down, uh, that caused me a little bit of trouble. Uh, and also, puppet.com was down. And I was trying to look up the documentation for. Something we were trying to do at work here, and Puppet was down, so I tried to, and then Googling around, I was like, "Oh, I can look at the source code for it, maybe figure out what it is." Since, since the documentation, and then GitHub was down. And I was like, "Ah, yeah, yeah like yeah, GitHub and and Puppet dot com. <laughs> Damn <laughs> it, tools, people, not the tools." <laughs> Yeah, and so, uh, you know, there has been an ongoing joke for a while about FreeBSD try, uh, moving its official source of truth to GitHub because it's where, that's where all the developers are. And it's like, yeah, suddenly uh, hosting your own thing doesn't look so bad, does it?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Noah made a lot of hay on that point during last this week.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, that's how it goes. Uh, I was honestly surprised at the number of places that were using uh, Um, dying. Yeah Although me too. Like GitHub is switched to
0: Amazon now. Um and I and I it must have been like yeah, like Twitter, uh, I think even Netflix and Spotify were down.
1: Uh well, I think part of Netflix I don't know that it was down so much as just uh the volume of traffic was clogging up level 3 and so on, making it very difficult to actually stream
0: anything. Issues, I imagine. Yeah, I can I can bet. So um so the timing seems to be potentially related could be coincidental with that video yeah. going up the wiki thing probably more of a publicity stunt than anything else but also a part of the timing whole thing's weird <laughs>
1: um <clears throat> and then so uh we have a second story here from Krebs uh related and he's uh mm-hmm. basically a follow-up saying that hacked cameras and dvrs powered the massive internet outage that we had on friday in particular uh Ars also has an article where uh, the Maria and the bashlight uh, botnets join forces to attack Dyne hmm. according to researchers at the security firm flashpoint uh, today 's attack was launched at least in part by the Maria based botnet Allison nixon re- uh, Director of research at Flashpoint, said at least one Maria control server issued a command or uh, issued an attack command to hit Dyne. Some people are theorizing that there were multiple botnets involved here. Ah, uh, what we can say is that we're we've seen a Mario botnet participate in the attack huh. uh, and so basically, what they are saying without coming out and saying it is they have uh, sensors they built that connect and pretend to be part of the botnet so they they have a device that pretends to be one of these hacked devices and cool. joins the botnet so they can see what commands are being sent to the botnet
0: that's nice. That's clever. A,
1: a, it's an age-old way to take out a botnet. It's I like a hunting, to, hunting, went,
0: hunting and approach, like a new take on it, because you're going to them, though, in a sense. You're...
1: Right, but well, sorry. The, the old way of doing command and control for botnets was an IRC channel. Yeah. Because you could send a message, and every bot would get it. Uh, so I'm very familiar with this technique of, of stealthily joining the channel, pretending to be the Pearl bot uh, that was installed on my web server, mm-hmm. watching what they're doing, okay. seeing what mm-hmm. the commands are, and then... Uh, Sometimes, actually, issuing commands myself and telling all the bots to delete themselves. <laughs> do you, so are you saying they've automated that? Like, they, they have... Uh, well, they, they have to build a custom one for each bot because you never know what... But once you have the source code for the bot, sure. Which Mario they do, it was very easy to make something that would pretend to be it.
0: So they're essentially uh, creating their own bots
1: to be fake bots and log and record everything. And, and basically see what the botnet controller is telling the bots to do. It's a great idea. Yeah, uh, and then <laughs> this is how they can prove that that botnet was used in the attack on Dyn is because they saw somebody giving the commands attack Dyn to the botnet. <clears throat> uh, and then S- Dyn has an official blog post, although they don't uh, say very much, but they're saying, it's likely at this point that you've seen uh, many news accounts of the di- distributed now services attack against Dyn, sustained uh, against our uh, managed DNS infrastructure, Uh We'd like to take this opportunity to add some additional detail and context regarding the attack, although uh, at the time of this writing, we're carefully monitoring for any additional attacks. Uh, Please note that our investigation regarding root cause continues and will be the topic of future updates. It is worth noting that we are unlikely to share all the details of the attack and our mitigation efforts in order to preserve preserve our future defenses. Yeah, this is the downside. Is that they they don't want to share all the detail because it would also tell the bad guys how to work around everything they're doing.
0: So uh, just so I'm clear, were, uh, were they were they actually sending traffic to these DNS servers, or were they doing DNF, DNS amplification attacks?
1: Uh, they were actually attacking the servers.
0: Okay, okay. So it's they're
1: actually. Otherwise, it would have been using Dyn to attack somebody. Okay, but, so uh, particularly the Dyn servers are authoritative, so they don't answer requests to anybody except for, hmm. for their own domains, for domains they host. So then
0: it was a sheer number of devices and bandwidth that, that, that yeah. they did this with. Okay.
1: Yeah. And they just took them out. Uh, then I have, uh, There's a follow-up link here from ThreatPost uh-huh. uh, where the Flashpoint researchers are pretty sure now, or moderately confident, that the attack was the work of some script kiddies and not politically motivated. Again, kind of going back to the is retribution for yeah. you posting that video talking about denial of service attacks and working with Krebs rather than, you know,
0: yeah. And I'm, I played about I think it was two or three clips in last night's on Filter where the 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 U.S. news media was saying that it's the Russians trying to mess with the elections. So they were already they were already yeah. saying it was, and in fact it's, they went to fact to, that uh, Twitter
1: was affected is just coincidental to the fact that Twitter uses Dyn for their hosting.
0: Yeah, so they went religion. to the they went to their logical extreme. It's the Russians uh, affecting the election. Uh, WikiLeaks went to their logical extreme. It's a response to Assange's internet connection being disconnected. <laughs> Nobody knows what's going on, but it looks like the evidence shows that it's just a bunch of script kiddies that could take down half of the inter- U.S.'s internet. <laughs> well, they didn't actually take out half of anything. To, right? I know, out, right? Like, I know, but to end well, users, website. to end they users, yeah. I agree. And in fact, it's kind of sad, and I, it, it kind of it's kind of too bad because it's not a super sophisticated cyber hack attack like the media is calling it. It's not it's not like this incredible feat that's been pulled off. It's it's overwhelming systems with traffic, which is not new and not super exciting, other than its total scale, really. So I, I was just looking at Inagogo, in the chat room links us to something that says that it's it's very few devices that were using the attack. But it looks like other data indicates
1: there was a lot of devices. So where – So Dyn's initial post said it was tens of millions of IPs, uh, but now they're saying it's possibly less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure where that stands. Yeah, uh, we'll basically have to wait for uh, more digging into that. But yeah. uh, we'll follow up with that on a future episode once uh, – People have actually figured out what happened.
0: They say with more time to analyze logs, Dyn reckons it's about a hundred thousand
1: home web connected gadgets. Well, I think that's all it took for the Krebsite one, right? Yeah, that sounds right. I don't know. Uh but yes, uh it does raise a valid point. In particular, it looks like Dyn doesn't use any cast for DNS. Uh and so when you actually take out their US East servers, it doesn't auto-fail over, but also uh I don't know uh I only checked during the attack but when I did even my server in Germany was going to the US East Coast to try to resolve stuff which seems you know weird. Yeah. Well, it's a it sure got a but lot then, of
0: attention. Yeah.
1: Uh well, in particular, traditional media did a terrible job of covering this. Yeah. So there's like a random news station here it's like unprecedented cyber attack. Yes. Uh, tens yep. of millions of IP addresses used to take down Twitter and Netflix. It's like well actually Twitter and Netflix didn't go down. They were up the entire time. You just, you know, weren't able to resolve them maybe. Mm-hmm. But if they were cached, you still did and and you know.
0: You should I mean you should've seen some of the clips that I played of them freaking out about this hack attack. They had then they had their they had experts to come on to talk about the hack attack and how it all works and it was it was it was painful listening to them.
1: Well, the biggest problem is that Nobody can actually know exactly what's going on, even dying when they're under attack in the first couple of hours. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: It it just doesn't work that way.
0: Yeah. And of course, on their first report, they're trying to do attribution. They're trying to say it's, you know, the scale of it. And then... And then there's really no follow up. There'll be no follow up on their part that it wasn't tens of millions, it was maybe 100,000. There'll be no follow up on the fact that it seems like it wasn't the Russians, it was just Script Kitties. It'll just be remember that hack attack we had, and that'll be it. It'll just be there was and now it's just become part of what's happened in the narrative. There's this giant hack attack, and the fact that it's a denial of service and that these systems weren't actually down. Nobody's systems were crashed except for –
1: Well, in particular, I think D-Y-M's, Elroy brought up the best uh, – uh, a better analogy now that people don't use phone books. is like the restaurants are still open, but your GBS just can't tell you how to get there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I guess so. Um, it's like you know, if – so. um, what is the restaurant review site called? I can't remember now. Yelp. Yelp. If Yelp is down, it doesn't mean the restaurants are closed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean you can't go out for dinner.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, and I wonder too if uh, if people uh, what could people have done themselves to to sort of couch for this? Like, would would running a local DNS server had helped? Assuming that the records were still valid, would if uh, they were
1: cached, so probably wouldn't have helped that much.
0: Okay. Um, what about if Twitter was running their own DNS, for example?
1: Well, it might have made. Well, it would have isolated Twitter wouldn't have experienced the problems if they weren't using dime when they're attacked although somebody just go after uh, their DNS specifically yes. yeah. uh, Twitter's DNS would probably be small on smaller infrastructure if it was just for Twitter mm-hmm. and would have resulted in them being easier to take out mm-hmm. a bunch of other time yeah yeah so what it really raises the question of is uh, I think' it's a server easy DNS offers where uh, if you register your domain with them Ooh. they can automatically so you you list say, Dyn as your DNS provider, and use Dyn, but if their servers go down or whatever because of an attack, it can automatically switch to a backup DNS provider. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think we'll see more options like that or places actually listing publicly two different DNS providers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you're, you're, you know, normally you list more than one DNS server. You have primary and backup or whatever, but usually they're the primary and backup of company A. You might actually see people starting to use company A and company B at the same time mm-hmm. uh, and and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for that, I would recommend dnsmadeeasy.com. That's uh, who I've been using for ooh, 15 years now uh, for my DNS service. And they've uh, had 100% uptime during it, even during denial of service attacks and so on. Oh, Because they have uh, over 1,000 name servers. And they use Anycast and... Uh, they can handle quite a few queries. And even if when there is a DDoS against them, which has happened many times, it only affects some servers in one region, right? They absorb the attack close to the source, uh, and then they have the other servers are still up.
0: Hmm. I will write that. Yeah, I know you've mentioned it before. I'm going to write it down and take another look at them. Because that does sound like a good one. Uh, especially after we just recently were taken down because our DNS was offline. Yeah, so. um, with hover. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: You know, it can be complicated to um, have multiple companies doing it because they each want to provide their own control panel or something. And how do you synchronize the records? Mm-hmm. Also, <clears throat> DNS Made Easy does specifically offer secondary DNS as a service. So if your primary will let you whitelist, you know, let these IPs actually slave off of you, uh, then you can actually uh, just do it that way.
0: Hmm, that's handy, Alan. Mm-hmm. All right, any other thoughts on this story? Uh nope, that's about for that. All right. Well, then I got some thoughts. Some thoughts on IX Systems. In fact, I'd love it if you go to Systems dot com slash techsnap to support the show and learn more about their awesome servers powered by those incredible Intel processors. From your small business all the way up to massive enterprise deployments, they have got you covered. Systems dot com slash techsnap. Some of the best buying experiences I've ever had have been with IX. The 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 whole process can be really tedious, and so it's nice to work with a company that's thought about this for a long time. They've been in the business since before the dot .com, boom, and pop, and they really know how to do this right. ixsystems.com slash techsnap also has a white paper where you can learn more. You can also head over to their blog to learn more about the uh, company, and from time to time they blog about things that might be up your alley, like Mm Open ZFS, which I don't know if we got a chance to cover this blog post on this show. I don't think we did, no. Yeah,
1: there's Uh, so many other things they've been doing. They sent uh, three or four or five people to the OpenZFS Dev Summit. uh, And Michael Dexter, a friend of the show and mine, uh, has written up a blog post for them about it, starting with Day Zero, where they actually – or maybe we have covered it. I remember you commenting about Day Zero before. Uh, But uh, we're starting with the social event uh, the night before the conference, where they just met up and had uh, food and drinks together. Uh, And then Day One was all talks, uh, all of which are on YouTube. I've watched a bunch of them. They're really good, especially if you're interested in the workings of it. The uh, talk about uh, native encryption in ZFS and how it actually works and how they worked around all the different problems, uh, that talk is very good. Uh, one of the best 45 minutes I would recommend watching. Uh, and there was a bunch of other uh, stuff as well. Cool, Alan. So check them out. And, it, it, and then day two was the hackathon uh, where all the people that are at the, the summit actually come together and work on like half-day projects of oh, nice. actually starting a new feature. And it has a list of some of the interesting ones, uh many of which you might end up seeing over the next years coming into new features in ZFS. Mm. Uh, they also had a little uh award thing. I think they give awards to the top five of the different ideas. That's pretty nice. Definitely worth checking out. Yeah,
0: yeah. There looks like those do look like reading some of the feature highlights there, those do look like some like they say, yes. no brainers. Uh, the
1: the one Intel's working on is really interesting called uh I think it's declustered raid. Uh the idea here is when a drive fails it starts a resilver automatically by storing the extra data that would normally go to the replacement disk on the additional disks that are already available hmm. so like if you have a you know eight disc array and one disk dies while you're waiting for a human to actually swap out the dead disk with a with a good one, you can actually start resilvering by putting the second copy of the data on some of the existing hard drives using Smart. up the, the empty space on your existing hard drives to get back to having less uh, chance of more lost redundancy. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's so cool. And of course, iX Systems will be on the very edge of integrating that when it's ready and supporting it with their great support staff. iX has systems from the free NAS Mini all the way up to their big rigs with massive compute network storage, all of it. Check it out at iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. And thanks to iX for sponsoring this show and building such great systems iXsystems.com slash tech snap what is a booter service alan what That's is a booter basically
1: service? ddos for hire is ah. what they, they try to you know they they market it as a, it's basically usually it's a slightly smaller ddos for hire system it's you know enough to allow you to you know if you get the ip address of your your arch nemesis who's beating you in some video game you can boot him off the internet with by attacking him or so it's the, uh, it's the, the other, lazy man's ddos Right? They're like, oh, you can stress your website yeah, and yeah, see if you can yeah. handle it. <laughs> Except for you never do it to your website, right? <clears throat> yeah, okay. Yeah, so these are the mostly smaller DDoS for higher services. Um, so there's been a lot of discussion about uh, BCP 38, which is Best Common Practice 38. It's, it's You know how we talk about RFCs, which are the yeah. uh, re- requests for comment that eventually gets turned into a standard. So BCP is more of a, these are the ways you should handle this particular type of thing. And it's a standard, but it's not nobody's forced to do it necessarily. But uh, what BCP38 says is that the best common practice is to filter traffic leaving an ISP so that you block anything trying to leave that has an IP address that isn't from your netblock. So, you know, if you're a home ISP or whatever, you don't want to let any traffic leave over your network that isn't from your network. Right. right? If it claims to be coming from over the, uh, the competing ISP down the street... You want to block it because you know it's spoofed. Are you blocking it? Or are you dropping it? What technically is yeah, happening? So, uh, usually it's just dropping it. Okay. Uh, so basically it's dropping spoofed packets by having a rule that says if it's not from our known IP addresses, then we're going to drop it and that we know that. The only traffic leaving our network should be coming from inside of it. If it's leaving our network but claiming it's actually sources over there, then that doesn't make so sense. So this is this is something we've talked about before, and it seems yes. so obvious that I, I kind of I well, don't know if I've are, why they don't do it. Yeah. Okay. Well, there are some complications. Like yeah. if for example you have say one of those Netflix uh, caching devices at an ISP, well it uses Netflix IPs to connect out. And so, you know, that there's a bunch like of things like you might manageable break though. And, Yes, it is manageable, but, you know. Yeah. Okay. Basically,
0: there's no it takes time re- to figure th- it out. They don't
1: they're just too lazy, right? It, yeah. it, there's not a big enough business reason to do it and too great of a chance of breaking something from doing
0: it. But it feels like it feels like it, it, there is a business reason. The business reason is your network isn't getting used and the the bandwidth on your yeah. network isn't getting soaked up by script kiddies as booster services. Yeah, I
1: guess uh the the bigger question. Booter. Yeah. Uh so there's a couple of things here. First of all, as far as we're aware, the attack on Dyn and a bunch of other people weren't actually using DNS amplification. Uh, well, in particular, the ones against Krebs, the 620 gigabit one, wasn't for sure. And so based on that, we're like, well, even if we solve, even if we implemented BCP38, it wouldn't have stopped the attack against Krebs based on all these IoT devices. Yeah. Okay. Right? Uh, now, it would help with some other types of attacks, uh, and we probably should still do that. Uh Um, I don't – there's no video of it, but the talk at the uh, closing keynote of EuroBSDCon this year was uh, talking about this and what some of the the issues with doing it are uh, and so on. But you can definitely look into – if you want to know more about BCP38 and some reasons why it's not done, you can look into that. Uh, Okay, cool. But, you know, in in particular, a lot of the attacks we're seeing now are just pure volume attacks based on hundreds of thousands of these devices. And, you know, if they can each send two megabits, then – you can easily get huge numbers, right? Um, However, uh, most of these booter services are using reflection and amplification techniques because uh, taking out a smaller website or an individual private game server, right? Like a lot of these are being used to take out Minecraft servers just because people are dicks. um, Doesn't require all that much resources, right? You don't need to manage a whole botnet to be able to do this. All you really need is like a single server, and it can send out an amount of traffic. You amplify that to make it bigger, and it's enough to take out some other single server. Yeah. Right? Or someone's home internet connection, if you just want to kick a player out of a game. <clears throat> so these uh, web-based DDoS for hire services don't bother running botnets. They generally employ a handful of powerful servers that are rented from some dodgy bulletproof hosting providers. Uh, bulletproof, in this case, means they basically ignore abuse complaints and aren't going to shut your server down. Uh, they're also what's used for spamming and and hosting botnets and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so they just find one of these places that's you know the back end of the internet and is willing to sell you whatever, uh, rent a couple servers there, and then use them to DDoS people or to uh, use reflection and amplification to make it look like it's a thousand bots attacking you when it's actually just all their one server sending out to reflectors that are then reflecting it back on the attacker, making it or on the victim, making it look like there's actually more Uh, sources than there actually are. And maybe there's amplification in there allowing them, yo, if I have two servers I each send one gigabit, but I amplify it by even fifty percent, all of a sudden now you're getting four gigabits and getting knocked offline. Yeah. Yeah. So to find those vulnerable systems that can be leveraged in this way as reflectors and amplifiers, uh booters employed large scale internet scanning services that constantly seek to refresh a list of systems that can be used for amplification and reflection attacks. Uh they do this because research has shown uh, that anywhere from 40 to 50% of the amplifiers will vanish or have a different IP address a week later. Because there are good guys out there also scanning, finding these reflectors and reporting them and complaining about them. I remember when the, the NTP-based ones were first happening, uh, you know, we saw a lot of this uh, complaints from uh, NeoNuke. I forget, a couple different oh, places. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that were actually, you know... Uh, one of the interesting ones is uh, one of my ISPs was having trouble with the NTP built into the the management controllers on their servers was uh, misconfigured to allow uh, the reflection stuff. So while everybody had installed the configuration update to stop the NTP on their server from being used in the attack, the one in the management controller, the second CPU in the server that most people don't think about, that one could still be used. Yeah, I and. Most of those maybe were only 100 megabits, but some of them were actually linked to the onboard gigabit NIC and could send a gigabit oh, of traffic. Mm, mm. And you're like, I'm looking at the the stats in my server. My server is not sending a gigabit of traffic right now, but the switch says it is. It's like, oh, right. There's actually a second Mac address built into that first NIC.
0: Hmm. So do you think the other thing that could re- result to some of these guys disappearing so quickly, like after a week... If they're like these cameras and these IoT devices, a lot of them, when you when you reboot them or they power cycle, they reboot from a, 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 a flash image that doesn't have the malware running. The malware gets wiped out, and then they get, they get right. reinfected later. So that could also probably attribute yep, to some it of it. Could as be a power part c-
1: of that, or just mostly. I think it's that you know people aren't meaning to put up these uh, amplifiers and reflectors. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so entered the researchers at uh, Saarland University in Germany and uh, Yokohama National University and the National Institute of Information and Communication Technologies in Japan. All right. In a year-long uh, project that they started in 2015, the researchers looked for scanning that appeared to be uh, kicked off by uh, bad guys or ne'er-do-wells, as uh, <laughs> Krebs likes to call them, uh, running these booter services. So to accomplish this, the research team built a kind of distributed honeypot system, which they dubbed Amppot, as an amplifier, uh, designed to mimic services known to be vulnerable to amplification attacks like DNS and NTP. So they set up honeypots that would pretend to be vulnerable DNS and NTP servers and watch for being scanned, right? Uh, So to make them attractive to attackers, their honeypots will send back legitimate responses, Uh, So they'll actually be amplifiers uh, and and look like that. Uh, So in their 2015 paper, they wrote that the attackers in turn will then abuse the honeypots as amplifiers to do attacks, which allows us to observe ongoing attacks, their victims and the DDoS techniques. Mm -hmm. To prevent the honeypots actually damaging people during these attacks, uh, they implement a, a rate limit so that... While they're uh, when they get the command and, and so on, they they will actually be part of the attack, but they limit it to so small that it won't actually hurt anybody. But this allows the researchers running the honeypot to actually see who's being attacked and who's doing it. Right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> the yeah. way the reflector's attacks works: <clears throat> the source guy sends the thing to the reflector, and the reflector sends the attack to the victim. So the victim never knows who the attack's actually coming from because they just see the reflector. But if the reflector's a honeypot. They might actually get to see the IP of uh, the source, where the attack is actually originating from, the IP address of these uh, bulletproof servers.
0: Mm-hmm. Huh. This is a this is a good way for doing research. <coughs> Very handy.
1: Yeah, uh, this way the attackers can still find the uh, rate-limited honeypots, but the honeypots don't actually hurt people. Huh. In that 2015 paper, the researchers said they had deployed 21 globally distributed pot instances which observed more than 1.5 million uh, attacks between February and May of 2015. In analyzing the attacks more closely, they found that more than 96% of the attacks stem from a single source, like a booter service, rather than actually being distributed. Huh. So it wasn't a botnet using the amplifiers. It was like a single server, or you know, a single comp- uh, bad guy running two or three servers as the source and then using the amplifiers to take out somebody. Because it was enough to to take out individual things, right? You, you, obviously, it's not going to be enough to take out a Twitter, mm-hmm. but it's enough to take out, you know, your kid's Minecraft server or your Skype call or you yeah. know whatever. Exactly. Uh, to distinguish between scans performed by researchers and scam performed by the malicious uh, within malicious tent, mm-hmm. uh, they relied on a simple assumption that no attack would be based on the results of a scan performed by an ethical researcher. Okay. So. Uh, in fact, thanks to our methodology, we don't actually have to make that distinction up front, but we can rather look at the results and say we found attacks linked to this scanner and that scanner, but not this other scanner. Therefore, that scanner is malicious, and that one is not. Hmm. If a scan was truly performed by benign parties, there will be no attacks linked to it, and it'll be fine. <clears throat> What's new in the paper that they released this week uh, by the students at uh, Saarland University's Center for IT Security, Privacy, and Accountability? Oh. Interestingly called CISPA, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, Center for IT Security Privacy and Accountability. Uh, but their method, the researchers were able to link these mass scans to a very uh, to the very amplification attacks that followed later on. Mm. Uh, the researchers worked out a way to encode a secret identifier into the set of amp pot honeypots that any subsequent attack will use. Uh, these very um, they vary per scan source uh, so that uh, basically they would hash the incoming IP addresses uh, and so that for each different scan source, they would list a different server as being vulnerable to the reflection attack. And then later, they would be able to tell, okay, this is the, ser- the address they used trying to do the amplification attack. So we know that actually came from the scanner that has this IP address. Okay. Um, yeah. So the, the, they then test to see if the scanning infrastructure was used uh, was also used to launch the attack or not. Okay. Uh, so they're looking to see <clears throat> are the booter services running the scanner on the same machines that they actually run the attacks from. Hmm. that uh, be a good uh, little yeah, bit they of used data. Yeah. a combination of the hop count uh, by <laughs> just looking at the TTL remaining on the IP packets. Uh, trilateration, uh, BGP path Trilateration, a Alan? Yeah, that's uh, what GPS does to figure out your latitude. Yeah, okay. It's like, because they have all these amp pots, the same scanner talks to all of them, and they can figure out where the scanner came from. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, So I thought that meant. That sounds pretty mm-hmm. damn cool. Mm-hmm. That's that's some sophisticated but, uh, analysis. Yeah, so they're
1: able to figure out which scanners uh, were linked to which attacks. Hmm. Uh, these have revealed that there are so far, 286 scanners that were used by booter services in preparation for launching amplification attacks. Further, they discovered that roughly 75% of those scanners are located in the U.S. Interesting. You know, I was I was just thinking how
0: much of this is going to be in the U.S. because so often you hear about pirated computers in China that are
1: being used for uh, botnets. Right, but these and, aren't botnets. These are the actual machines that right. the attackers yeah. are using. Although, yes, often... When you hear about bulletproof hosting, you kind of assume it has to be offshore.
0: Yeah, or you are no or I think I mean I still think there's a lot of I think if you ask the average people where where did where do botnets run from who where what what, what groups control them what machines are used a lot of them would say China or another country. They wouldn't say, well, 75% of uh, them would be in the United States. Well, this is 75% the of people the scans. Who could, yeah. not the attack. Right. No, I understand.
1: Still. But yes, uh, you know, uh machines in in the US uh as far as botnets go, are worth more because they generally have slightly more bandwidth. than you know, you can't launch a very big DDoS attack on the U.S. from China because there's only so much bandwidth across the ocean there, right? And I wonder how much um, the deployment
0: of broadband matters. So how more more likely, if broadband is more widely deployed, are you to have people that are scanning the internet and doing things that require a bit more bandwidth
1: you're probably more likely to do it in areas that have a higher penetration of broadband. But yeah. So most of these scanners are probably running off dedicated servers and stuff rather than a hack machine because uh, they assume that the scanner is never going to be linked to the attack right? because all it did was a, 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 an unharmful
0: scan. So you scan. don't think some of these people are doing this from, say, like a sophisticated, like, say they got themselves a, a like, a high-end workstation, they're developing this stuff, and they're running the scans from their ISP connection. Do you think that's probably not... They could...
1: They maybe are doing that, Okay. I think it's mostly uh, like rented
0: servers or VPSs. Yeah. and
1: yeah. Yeah, but in general, they, uh, you know, when you're doing the scan, that's that's something that's you know not against the rules. You're not hurting anything, right? Uh, and so, the, you know, it, in general, it never gets tied to the attack. But these researchers have developed a way where their honeypot will basically, yeah, I think they have a. I'm not sure exactly how they did it, but I imagine they have like a range of IP addresses, mm-hmm. and depending on the source IP address of the scan they make one of that range of IP addresses look like the vulnerable machine. Mm-hmm. So that a different a scan done by a different IP is going to show a different result. And then they oh. know which one is actually using the attack later, and they can tie it back. Mm-hmm. Huh. If they have a big enough IP address range, they can easily figure out, all right, you know, the scan done by this IP address resulted in these hosts over here attacking uh, or using our, our honeypot as a reflector to attack this site over here. Okay. Uh, And if you have the IP address of the scanner and of the machine that was actually sending the traffic, and you could tie that back to a specific booter service, you can say, this booter service is what was used to attack this person over here.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, And again, it's almost as if, uh, remember, we were just talking in the previous story about uh, having a a, a stealth bot in the botnet to figure out what they're attacking. They're basically doing that by having stealth honeypots uh, as reflectors to see what people are using the reflectors to attack. And again, they can figure, all oh, right, this guy is actually the source of the attack on this person. And, and, or we can know for sure it's like this booter service is what was used to attack that person. Just like mm-hmm. that botnet is what was used to attack Dyn. It's very handy. <clears throat> Although Krebs says, even if these newly described discovery methods were broadly deployed today, it's unlikely that booter services will go away anytime soon. But this research certainly holds the uh, promise that Uh, booter service owners will be uh, able to hide the true location of their operations less successfully going forward and that perhaps more of them will be held accountable for their crimes. Yeah, that is a nice win. That is, uh, that's yeah, probably not going to go away. The question is how much of that is mitigated if the attackers figure out how it's done. Uh, In particular, if I just have my scanner randomly vary the starting TTL of the packets, then the hop counting goes out the window. Damn it, Alan. (laughs) But most of these script kiddies maybe are not that sophisticated. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be an
0: arms race, isn't it? But, you know, at some there's point mo- – Whenever yeah, there's money to be made or money the, the to be saved. Is the
1: script kiddies generally are probably not developing this stuff themselves. They're buying it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there's somebody if, who's... If you, if you could buy a DDoS script for a couple thousand dollars and then use it to to sell $600,000 worth of booter services, yeah, yeah. like VDoS did, then...
0: Now, the Galler guy who's making that initial script, they're <clears> the <throat> ones making the money, because they gotta they got to stay on well, top the, of the, it. Well, the
1: script kiddies made the, the pile of money, uh-huh. but they're the ones that went to jail. So, so um,
0: at least to some regard, it seems like people are really wrapping their heads around how to narrow down where this is coming from. Uh, so... Uh, in a in a kind of a it kind of a silver lining is even if they m- might figure out ways around it at least for now we might actually be able to hold a few people accountable right which yep. would be which would be really nice uh well that is pretty cool mr Jude. anything else you want to talk about on that guy
1: uh nope that's what Hmm,
0: like. what an interesting week and there's uh there's still a dirty cow to get to. But first, let's talk about DigitalOcean. Use our promo code SNAPOcean. It's one word. It's all lowercase. You apply it to your account, you get a $10 credit. They're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up a cloud server. They have a great, fast infrastructure. All SSD drives 40 gigabit E-connections into the hypervisor. This is... Cooking with gas. And of course, just like Mr. Jude, you can deploy yourself a free BSD droplet. They also have CentOS, CoreOS, Ubuntu, Debian, Fedora. Their interface is really, really nice. It makes it easy to add your own SSH key, deploy multiple droplets at once, template, snapshot, backup, destroy, and transfer the droplets. It's pretty nice. And they've got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London. Toronto and the Germany, and in India as well, I believe. However, let's be honest. The only place you're going to want to have a, a droplet is in Toronto. You just want to, You want that Alan Jude aura near your server, and that's how you get as close as possible. You combine that with their great interface, their super sweet API, and then they have a great staple of tutorials. I think that's what I'm going to call it. Uh, they just published one about uh, setting up mod rewrite on Apache. They've mm-hmm. they've got ones in here for FreeBSD. They've got ones in here for... Uh, how to protect your server against the cow linux vulnerability i mean they've got some great tutorials and they keep making the service better and better not too long ago they launched block storage highly available data da- storage for d- data growth whatever you're going like for you're going cray cray like i was a couple of weeks ago i was experimenting with a server that was just writing a ton of data that's you can add block storage as you need it from 1 gigabyte all the way up to 16 terabytes all ssd backed it's so nice. It's so nice when you're, if you're just experimenting or you've got something big on. Plus, they've recently launched high-memory droplets. And the pricing when you do it hourly is so nice. And when you want to go monthly, it's easy to understand and still a great value. DigitalOcean.com. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean. If you need to get a little compute, basically any time you need a computer that doesn't have a monitor. They do have an HTML5 console. Anything you want to try out. It's a new web app, something. It's so handy. DigitalOcean.com and just use our promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So, uh, Dirty Cow has gotten a lot of attention. Ours calls it the most serious Linux privilege escalation ever. It's been in the wild for years. You ready to break it down?
1: Yes. Uh, So, yeah, they have a new vulnerability named Dirty Cow. If you pull up the site, it's got a nice graphic and everything. Uh, But, yes. a race condition was found in the way that the Linux kernel memory subsystem handled the copy-on-write breakage of private read-only memory mappings. Uh, an unprivileged local user could use this flaw to gain write access to otherwise read-only memory mappings and thus increase their privilege on the system by you know, changing bits of memory that are supposed to be read-only and making uh, changing something that they shouldn't have been able to change. While CVE 2016 91 5195 is a bug uh, is cataloged uh, as a bug is catalogued amounts to a mere privilege escalation vulnerability rather than a more serious code execution vulnerability. There are several reasons many researchers are taking it extremely seriously. For one thing, it's hard to develop or it's not hard to develop exploits that work reliably. For another, the flaw is located in a section of the Linux kernel code that's part of virtually every distribution of the OS or open source OS released among. In the last decade. Ouch. So, like, every version of Linux is vulnerable.
0: I believe it's like the last nine years, right? So, mm-hmm. it goes way back.
1: Which yep. also, by the way, means
0: every Android handset is vulnerable. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, what's more, researchers have discovered that the attack code, uh, or discovered attack code that indicates the vulnerability has been actively and maliciously exploited in the wild previously. Oh. Uh, the vulnerability is easily exploited with local access to a system, such as a shell account. Uh, but, less trivially, any web uh, server application. Uh, may be vulnerable, which allows uh, if the attacker is allowed to upload a file on the impacted system and then execute it. Lots of WordPress-type uh, vulnerabilities where you can uh, modify a file or upload a file and then run it, and then it would be able to execute that, get root access, and do whatever it wants on the server, including open a backwards shell so the attacker can connect and have root on your machine. So uh, all the typical ways of, of exploiting a website or whatever where you're normally left as the unprivileged user of the web server – now can be ex- escalated to have root access and take over the whole server. Yeah, anytime an unprivileged local user can get higher
0: yeah. up in the system, it only takes just the right—I mean, the right conditions—and you can take advantage of that. It's not a big. That's that's bad. Yeah. That's not a.
1: Well, you know, normally you think local users like, oh, I don't have any local users on my server. The only users well, are me. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> no, it's like actually everything runs as a user. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So, uh, what makes Dirty Cow? Uh, the dirty cow bug unique uh in fact all the normal uh, boring normal bugs are way more important just because there's a lot more of them i don't think uh there's some uh spectacular security holes should be glorified or cared about uh and as being more special than a random spectacular uh crash due to bad logging or whatever but this one is especially bad because it affects so many versions of linux basically uh so then there's some questions about the in-the-wild stuff. Apparently, uh, some people actually have HDB captures of, of it being used against them, uh, although a lot of the details weren't being shared originally because um, they were waiting for people to get patched up first before Why they did make this it all come easier. out
0: before uh, before most people were patched up?
1: Uh, because it's being actively exploited in the wild, I think.
0: Oh, okay. All right.
1: So people need to know sooner rather than later. Whew! <clears throat> uh, that's oh, bad. But the one I, okay, so this one I found especially funny. It's on the official DirtyCow.Ninja website. Yeah. Uh, I didn't write this. It says, uh, what can be done to prevent this from happening in the future? They say, the security community, we included, meaning the uh, people that made the site, uh, must learn to find these uh, inevitable human mistakes sooner. Please support the development effort of software you trust for your privacy. And then they provided a link. Donate money to the FreeBSD project. <laughs>
0: No, did you write that out? Did I didn't you? do that. It's on the website. <laughs> I didn't do it.
1: <laughs> oh. Oh, wow. Oh, can, that's the like that, the web the source for the website's on GitHub. You can find the commit where it was added. It was by the original person, not me.
0: You know, that's that's as bad as when uh, ButterFS had used uh, ZFS. Just just unbelievable.
1: Well, this it's not Linus saying Use oh. previous.
0: No, I know, but gosh, that just hits you right in the uh, soft spot. It's just a little <laughs> salt in the wound. That's all. Just a little salt in the wound. So um,
1: you know, so I th- uh, Red Hat has an interesting quote here. Okay, uh, at the time of the public disclosure, the in the wild exploit that Red Hat was aware of uh, did not work on Red Hat Enterprise Linux five and six out of the box because the exploit uh, relied on one side of the race writing to proc self mem. Yeah. But ProxSelfMem Mem is uh, is not writable on Red Hat Enterprise Linux uh, five and six. Right now they don't mention seven. Does that mean it was workable on seven? I guess. <clears throat> um, however, since the public disclosure, uh, several proof of concepts have been published that use the ptrace method and do work on CentOS uh, or Red Hat Enterprise Linux five and six. So uh, while the original one didn't have a, a flaw, or didn't wasn't. Out of the box, exploitable on uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 5 and 6. Um, people have already developed ones that are. I guess
0: when I when I see this, I think to myself, the real the real issue is the long tail. Um, just recently we covered a Google story that said that uh Linux vulnerabilities are usually in the wild for five years. Well, this one's nine. And the problem isn't that we don't get the new code written, well, the problem is that know, nobody this, gets it
1: deployed. This one, it wasn't – I don't know if this – the bug existed for nine years. I don't know that there was an exploit sitting around for it for all nine of those years. Sure,
0: okay. But I guess what my point is, it's not – the pro- the problem doesn't seem to be that the, the code gets written to fix it. That always seems to happen. The, the problem is that the code doesn't get deployed – to well, many, th- there many, wasn't many a fix places. for this one
1: for it's not like there was a fix for this one for nine years.
0: No, I, I understand.
1: But the, the question my, is, now that we have a patch, how long before that's my even point. Just ninety percent of people have the patch.
0: We that's my point. We just we just had a study that was just came out that just said it's five years, but according to a Google engineer, it's five years is the well, average.
1: It's, part of it is because if you're looking at routers running Linux 2.6 kernels. Yeah. Although they might be old they might this time they might be old enough not to have the vulnerability. How old is, is how far back does this go? Do you know version wise?
0: I I did, but I don't uh, I don't have it handy anymore.
1: Okay. But um yeah, the problem is that it when it's when it's these IoT type devices or even pre-IoT appliance type devices like routers that don't get firmware updates, then literally the only way for the vulnerability to go away is when people throw that router away and replace it with a new one. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And so, yeah, that's why it takes five years because that's like the hardware refresh cycle basically on these appliances. Kernel
0: 2.6.22, released in 2007. The fix was released on October 18th, 2016.
1: So that one's kind of right on the border, I guess. Yeah. Uh, being vulnerable?
0: Yeah. There's there's two, wow, two sixes.
1: Some appliances might be just old enough to be 2.6.22 eighteen. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: but yeah. 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 <laughs> this might be the time where you want an older one. <laughs> That's hilarious, Alan. Oh my gosh. So Dirty Cow seems to be uh, uh I've also been seeing a lot of coverage in the context of mobile. That seems you know, to be uh that seems to be a big part of it is, you know, the mobile devices that are now affected by this. Um Yeah. Uh, but I guess I guess the the, the issue is is there's we are going to constantly be finding problems like this that have been around for a long time. And it, see, it feels like if we don't solve the overall patching problem, which I know this is a soapbox of mine, but if we don't solve this problem, then it doesn't matter if we fix it. And then we just keep coming in. I mean, there's there's probably there's probably machines out there still that have the bash vulnerabilities and the OpenSSL vulnerabilities, and et cetera, et, yeah. et cetera.
1: Uh, I don't know if somebody stagging. did the looking. Well, <clears throat> for the OpenSSL one, it's a little less bad when it's on the client side because mm-hmm. you have to actually connect to a bad guy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's
1: true. Uh, so that's that's the the saving grace of all these two dot six Linux routers and so on is they most of them didn't bother with SSL because the processor was too small to to generate a certificate in a reasonable amount of time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so is there any other uh, any other shots you want to take at uh, at Dirty Cow before we move on?
1: <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't want to. Beat the dead
0: cow. Oh. I feel like it's beating itself right now. You know what? We all need to get our spirits lifted by visiting Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com to land on a page that supports us and gets you $25 off your first Ting device or $25.00. In service credits now, Ting is mobile. That's so simple and straightforward that usually you're only going to pay like twenty three bucks for a monthly bill with a device on it. Six bucks for the line, and then you just pay for what you use with your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. There's no contract. There's no early termination fee, and they have incredibly good customer support. And they have a great control panel. I've been a Ting customer now. When I get to when, when January gets there, I think it'll be three years, and. Uh, I think I've probably used customer support really just once, and I was very, very impressed. But the thing that I really like about Ting is they have continued to get better and iterate on all of their features and add new ones. Like their dashboard, it's really nice. they got apps. they got the, the web page. It all works on your mobile, all that good stuff. That's, I mean, it really is a great tool, and it has all your stuff just listed right there. But I'll tell you, I also like a lot of the things they've done since I've become a customer. Like the adding of GSM, so they have GSM and CDMA services. The doubling down on those of us who are cord, cord cutter. The rollout of their fiber internet service and the re- reduction of their data prices. Speaking of getting a good deal, they just posted on the 24th. This is probably the blog post I've been waiting for for a long time. Five inexpensive smartphones with flagship-level performance. They go in here, they talk about the cameras, they talk about the updates, they give you your different options with different price points. I think it's a great post if you want to get a nice value phone that still has good performance, you want to put it on a cellular network that gives you CDMA, GSM, you only pay for what you use, no contract, no termination fee. And if you got a device you think might work with Ting, go check out their BYOD page and then grab a $9 SIM. And then you'll get a $25 service credit. Or go pick up a device... Look at this. They got the new Blue Studio Studio C for $74. No contract. Unlocked. You own it outright. That's so nice. TechSnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And also just a Ting Pro tip. You can call them or you can go to their website and click this, How Much Would You Save? And give that a go and see what Ting can do for you. TechSnap.ting Dot com. I woke up early this morning to a brand new episode of the BSD Now program. The beard must have been editing all night, and uh, episode 165 is out. Vote for BSD. This looks like, a, this looks like a, a slightly shorter episode than last week's. Oh, wait, was last week's the Brian Cottrell episode, or is that? Yes, that's yeah. why. Okay, that, yeah. <laughs> so what's going on in this episode 165, Mr.
1: Jude? Uh lots of stuff uh vulnerability <laughs> beehive um well i don't remember it was, that was yesterday that was yesterday yeah <laughs> well, well, somebody oh. should just read the tweet somebody sent about it
0: <laughs> okay well i'll tell you what it had it it had windows 10 under beehive that sounds pretty yes. good update yeah, about, tutorial for that an update
1: about lumina 110 that sounds nice 110 okay sure. uh uh how to a, a tutorial on creating your first kernel module damn yeah um, an article about uh, CTL or CAM target layer, yeah. which is uh, kind of related to iSCSI. Um, and basically, this article is how you could take a shelf of disks like you would buy from iX yeah. and two head controller machines connected to that one set of disks and do high availability. Oh, nice. So that you can actually reboot one of them or one of them can crash. But yet your your VMs and your file server stuff ever c- continues to run off of the other one. Geez, that sounds like a, yeah, that would answer cool stuff. a lot of
0: questions we've gotten. <clears throat> nice. So that sounds like a great yeah. episode. Check it out. Episode 165 of the BSD Now program. And uh, you can go get an HD. So that way, uh, just as we're wrapping up here. Oh, yes, you,
1: the, the vote title doesn't have anything to do with the U.S. election. It has to do with the Aaron election. Oh, okay. The American Registry of Internet Numbers.
0: See, and find out more by getting that episode. Just as we wrap up, you can go watch more. Get more information. Don't stop now. And um, We're about the halfway point, so it'd be a good time to go get it at jupiterbroadcasting.com. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. <laughs> Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link up at the top of the JB website or maybe starting a thread And our subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. And Alan, Will writes in with our first email this week. He wants to know about admin from the WAN site on these routers in the discussion of the attack on Krebs's site. One of the types of devices listed as being used is routers. Are routers typically pre-configured with their default account and password to get accessed from the WAN side? I would have thought that it would have been sufficient to allow that just from the LAN side. It basically is asking, how are
1: all these little devices getting compromised? It's not like well, they're allowing WAN logins. Right. Well, it depends. There's like, quite a few different things. It also depends what you mean by router as well. Um, so the little home router type devices, which are really just NAT gateways, um, actually have a differentiation between a WAN side and a LAN side. And most of them have the option of enabling the WAN side, but it's off by default. Some of the cheaper Chinese ones maybe have that on. Um, Now, other types of routers, especially more higher-end like Cisco's and so on, often have – they don't really have the concept of a WAN side versus a LAN side. They just have a bunch of ports that you could plug anything into. Uh, And people enable Telnet, and, you know, it's less of a thing right now, but – Going back a couple of years, uh, there were a lot of DDoS attacks that were launched l- by just thousands of regular Cisco, like high-end Cisco routers that people logged into over with the default username and password to the point that <clears throat> one of our groups that was being attacked would go around scanning for these Ciscos, log into them, and change the default password this so they unf- wouldn't be able to be used against us in the future.
0: Oh, sorry. Hello.
1: You know, Alan, that's
0: that sounds kind of fun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, in particular, like, a, lo- a lot of the devices being used in this recent one were those, um, the webcam and DVRs, yeah. which had Telnet enabled by default. And even if you went in the web interface, there was no way to turn Telnet off or even any way to know that Telnet was there if you didn't just try and connect to it and find it was there. And yeah. changing passwords in the web interface didn't affect the passwords for Telnet, oh. which it turns out on, these, on those specifically those Xiaomi ones, uh, you cannot actually change the password. It's not possible. You'd have to like reflash the device with an image that just happened to have a different password. You can't change the password on them at all. So it's not so much that people aren't changing the default password. Even if they did in the web interface, the device is still vulnerable because there's a hard-coded default password for root over Telnet that you can't turn off.
0: Yeah, that's, and you combine that with things like universal plug-and-play that can automatically forward ports. And you combine also, it doesn't take
1: that much work we've covered yeah, in like, stories. you have one th- of those web security cameras, they're... Purposely making it so that you can yeah. connect to it from your cell phone yeah. while on the road.
0: We've also covered stories in the past where, like a, uh, through a browser infection or a phishing link in your email, you compromise yes, a computer on the land.
1: The, the link uh, you could get in your email... Uh, yep. That would actually yep. be an image, yep. so that it wasn't even a link. You didn't have to click on it; just you, you, you tried to the image, to close the image yep. and it would actually connect your router and change your DNS servers yep. on your router to point to uh, a bad ones that would hijack your yep. Google traffic. This to is steal this the ad is money.
0: this is a thing that's been happening more and more as more cons. I think this is my theory. I think as consumers move over to phones and tablets for some of their computing, and they're not on Windows desktops as much, uh, attackers have to kind of pivot to a different attack surface, a different vulnerability, a different thing to take advantage of. And if they can get, you, if they can get your router and they get you looking at their DNS servers or the, and they can monitor where you're going, they can inject ads, that can affect an iOS device, an Android device, a Windows PC, a Mac. You know, So if you get all the machines, you get everybody on the LAN. It's, it's really got to be, a, I would think, a, a huge incentive for them. And because of the security in these boxes is so crappy, the fruit hangs low, Will. I think that's what's going on. All right, so John writes in, he wants to know how to secure the Internet of Terrible Things. I'm writing you about a current issue, Internet of Things and DDoSs. As an end user, how to how do I secure my Internet of Things devices from getting hacked besides not buying one? Namely, from the network point of view, because I can't control that. Uh, I can't control the software running on these devices. When an IoT device gets owned, what can be done so the IoT, IoT device cannot be part of any kind of DDoS attack? From a network point of view, of course, he says, I see two scenarios, one where a user has a state-of-the-art firewall, PFSense, second, where the user has one cheap off-the-shelf router. Is there any way to set up up my network so the Internet of Things web camera and the IoT thermometer can be limited that they cannot be part of any malicious network activity? Thanks for any helpful information, John.
1: Yeah. So the biggest one is if you can make it so that the Internet cannot connect to your device from outside, that will help most of it. Right. So your IoT webcam uh, or or like, you know, security camera, generally you kind of want to expose it to the Internet so that you can check on it from home or from outside on your phone or whatever and see what's going on. But if you can manage to not do that, then you can make it so if nobody can reach it from the Internet, then they can't infect it. So maybe you have to resort to doing something like an SSH channel or a VPN in order to connect your LAN on your phone and then be able to open up the camera for the thermometer. There's no reason your thermometer ever needs to connect to the internet and you could use your firewall to just block it entirely possibly. Um, so doing that with pfSense is relatively easy. You can create rules that, you know, for the Mac address of the thermometer, don't ever allow it to use the internet and it will follow its IP as it moves around in DHCP or you can create a, a DHCP reservation. So your thermometer always gets the same IP address and then have your router block that IP address from using the internet with your, off-the-shelf route is probably a little bit more difficult.
0: Yeah, so Jake in the chat room says uh, more people should do VPNs and then have a route from the VPN to an Internet of Things VLAN without WAN access. And Noah yeah. kind of does... although your it-
1: off-the-shelf stuff probably,
0: you know... Most people... Doesn't let you set VLAN tags, probably.
1: Right. Well, in particular, yeah. The, the, the switches built into your little off-shelf router maybe doesn't support VLANs. And most people don't have a dedicated managed switch. You know. It
0: might be reasonable to just say, this cheapo switch... Like, I was just on Newegg this morning and saw a six-port gigabit unmanaged switch for... I don't know. It was like 55 bucks or something. This cheap, crappy switch is where is the Internet of
1: Things network. And well, it, so, uh, the bigger one is... Most of the time, almost all your IoT stuff is probably connecting over wireless. So I was just going like to say, so
0: throw, so, so throw an AP have in that network second, too.
1: Yeah. So yeah. Have, a, have a second AP or whatever and a different subnet and maybe don't allow it out. Or with a PFSense, you can actually rate limit it. You so would allow be, it to have yeah. access the internet, but oh. you can't do more than a megabit a second. Or, some, or you can, or, only, or
0: some, you can oh. only talk to the Philips Hue control server or something
1: like that. Right. Or, or or just your traffic is limited to this trickle so that you can't yeah. actually hurt anybody with DDoS. Yeah.
0: I, I like the idea of putting a Wi-Fi network in the Internet of Things network because a lot of these Internet of Things devices are managed from phones, and you have to connect to – you probably have to connect your phone to that Wi-Fi network anyway. So you probably have to have wireless in the mix. So just do it right and maybe just do it on its own physically isolated network because you're never going to get better than that. So that's something to consider, John.
1: All right. Yeah, so Yeah. Um, because, yeah, the other problem is that some of those try to help you. So um, – <clears throat> A bunch of those, like, uh, for example, there was the Chinese um, IoT device. You plug it into the socket and then you plug a lamp into it, and Mm -hmm. then you can turn the lamp on and off from your phone. Yeah. And so that one, to avoid making you have to open a port or something, the way it works is the device connects out to a server in China. Yeah. And then your phone connects there. Yep. And then that server controls your ability to send commands to that switch. Yeah. Except for they did it by, the only authentication was you basically knowing the MAC address of the switch the, the the device at your house. So it meant uh, somebody else who knew how this device worked could just send a command to that server and just iterate every possible MAC address in the range assigned to this company and turn off everybody's lights. Jeez. So <clears throat> they can also have other problems, but it's less likely that somebody will be able to take over the device that way.
0: Yeah. I would say if you're really seriously worried about at the end of the day, its own separate physical network that doesn't have any connection to the outside world, and you're, you're fine. Yep. And then you can iterate on that to your level of comfort. Uh, okay, yeah. so uh,
1: it's, it's much harder to do without something like a PF sensor. Where you actually have yeah. some control. Yeah,
0: yeah. And if you got an old crappy piece of hardware, look to see if there's an alternative firmware you could put on <laughs> yeah. it. Perhaps. Well, uh,
1: yeah. So uh, open or something or mm-hmm. DDWRT or something like that on your cheap device might help a lot too. Uh, some of them you can manage to actually deal with the second subnet, but you have to add a bunch of static routes, and it's a lot of headache. And if if you don't understand how to do it, it's rather
0: difficult. All right. Mike writes in and wants advanced advice on Windows security. Hello, Chris and Alan. My grandfather was recently hit by ransomware on his Windows machine. He's asked me to help assist him in securing his Windows machine to ensure something like this doesn't happen again. Since I'm a Linux user, I'm not sure what's the best solution for this problem. I'm aware that there are many different ways he can defend against these attacks, such as safe browsing habits, awareness of scams and their behaviors, and, of course, backing up data. I would like your advice on antivirus vendors or, more specifically, antivirus software that we would need to run to protect this PC. I know in the past you guys have covered some really dodgy AV vendors, so I want to avoid those ones. Thanks. Mike, what are your thoughts on this, especially when yeah. you're going to have the end user not be super sophisticated?
1: Your biggest problem there is that all the antiviruses are reactive, right? They can only deal with the, the ransomware once they know what it is. So if you're one of the first people hit by it, it doesn't help you at all. Yeah,
0: I would say um, there are there are some advantages to using things like U Block or Ad Block because they will block some domains that are known to have generally malware or mal- malvertising yep, and then in general. Some
1: user behavior stuff to help defend against it. Your Ab- biggest one though is get the backups. Yeah, you, and if you have the backups, then you can just restore after. Make you that get bulletproof, ransomware. so he
0: doesn't even have to mess with it. Don't even rely on him swapping physical stuff; that's not going to work. Also. Make sure he's not running with administrative privileges. There's no reason to do that on most Windows PCs. And that can that can so dramatically limit the damage. And make sure UAC is turned on as well. I don't care if it's a pain in the butt. These things have been built into Windows for a reason. I absolutely recommend yeah, that. Basically,
1: the UAC, even when it's popping up all the time and bothering you, it's still working. Because if it pops up suddenly when you didn't do something to make it, then you know that's suspicious, right? If, if when I get a pop up after I try to launch an application, I know okay, I tried to launch that. Yeah. And so yes. Yeah. But if I get one in the middle of just looking at a website, I'm like, I didn't do that. That's no die in a fire.
0: I I honestly would also if you're gonna if you're gonna put a gun in my head, I honestly would say ESET still. I still like ESET's antivirus products. I. I, I'm the last person to ask about that because I'm not only do I primarily run Linux, but when I ever do run Windows, I never install antivirus.
1: I've never. Uh, the last time I had an antivirus was 1998. I had a McAfee bomb shelter that would actually let you recover from Windows 95 blue screen of deaths or Windows 98 blue screen of death. Wow. I wonder what kind of memory manipulation it's doing to pull that off. Right? I don't know. <laughs> that, that's what they that said on the box. So uh, how many times you get viruses, Alan? Me? Uh I think there was one time ever at a LAN yeah. party where somebody somebody's computer had got infected and it infected the patch file for a video game. And it's like, oh, don't don't download that over. You know, we had slow internet at the time. Actually, no, we were having this one at the lawn bowling pavilion building. Okay. And so we had no internet at all. Uh so he had uh, Wes had a patch for this game and uh, and so I copied it over the LAN instead of, you know, getting a copy from an authoritative source. And then I was playing the game, and I was like, how come every time I'm holding Uh-oh. down the W key, my hard drive is going crazy? Uh-oh. I put it up and it installed some kind of key logger, and it was trying to log all the things I was doing playing Battlefield 1942. <clears throat> so I quickly found the problem and killed it and cleaned up my machine. But that was, that was the last time. That was like 2002. So obviously antivirus might help, and ESET
0: is kind of my favorite so it's worth looking at, but Mike, if you just got him yep. running with a with a regular user account and get him on Chrome or Firefox, make sure he's not on Internet Explorer. Put uBlock Origin on that, and uh, maybe consider using Easy DNS. You'd probably get really close yep. to or, uh, Open DNS. Yes, good, uh, right. Thank sorry. you, thank you. Open DNS, um, and then like Alan said too, make sure those backups are just totally bulletproof. Yeah.
1: Uh, you want backups, and you want to make sure your backups have. You know, not just a copy of all your files because if a, if a backup's running when it starts crypto-lockering you, then you end up backing up the encrypted version and then you're hosed, right?
0: What about playing around with like Clonezilla too, just for like belt and suspenders, so that way not only do you have the data, but you have the base OS with the applications yeah, configured.
1: Yeah, uh, Clonezilla will allow you to have a better, an easier point to restore from. Yeah. So yeah, maybe get the machine working, get them happy with it, Clonezilla that, so that you have something to bootstrap from. And then you have your regular, you know, whatever kind of nightly backups or backup weekend backups or whatever. Yeah, uh, tar snap is good, although it's a little dodgy on Windows. So, uh, you know, or rather, because it's command line is a little harder to set up on Windows. But yeah, tar snap uh, would be a little harder. Yeah, but um, some kind of backup backblaze, service, backblaze, backblaze blaze on, blaze, on Windows. What was that other one you liked? The uh, crash plan. Crash right? plan. Yeah, I, I think I might go like backblaze that. these days. But yeah, yeah, uh, and then that way you can bootstrap from the Clonezilla and then restore, you know your daily backups or whatever from yep. your, your uh, other thing.
0: Yeah. And uh, that'd probably mean that if something happens again, your total time investments at least cut in half, if not more. So that could be really nice too. All right, Mike, thank you. Now, if you didn't hear your email answered or read on this show, there's a good chance we're going to read it next week. because we're doubling up. So thank you. Keep sending them in though. Cause now we need more. So go over to the Jupiter broadcasting page and click contact. We have a few more for next week, but then we're all out and we have a nice open inbox. For your emails to flood in and get answered right here on the show. So go to the contact page, choose TechSnap from the dropdown, and send your questions in. But with our emails all done for this episode, it means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. Some of these links came from our intelligence network over at TechSnap.reddit.com. Our first one, though, came from Mr. WWNSX in our chat room while we were recording. Adobe is launching an emergency flash bulletin for Flash. I guess there's uh, some active malware exploitation happening, and so they want everybody to update ASAP. Mm-hmm. Flash player getting an update. It's CVE twenty sixteen seventy eight fifty five. The use after free programming blunder apparently. Hmm. Yeah, this just broke uh, like as we were recording the last segment, Alan. Yep. So there you go.
1: There's some there's some light breaking news in the roundup. Uh, they have a version number there. Make sure you're running twenty three dot zero dot. What's it say?
0: Oh, I don't know. I just noticed the CVE number. No. Uh, a little bit further like... down. It's twenty three dot zero dot. 23.0.0.205. Yeah, make um, sure you have at
1: least that uh, version or newer.
0: And for Linux, you need 11.2.202.643. <laughs>
1: yes. Someday okay. they will actually have, uh, they, they said they were going to make a 23 for Linux. But... They do a lot of things, though, don't they? They say a lot of things, and they don't necessarily do all well, of they them. Well, said they said they were killing it off, and yeah. did. And now they're saying no, we might actually, it turns out Linux has still got enough market share, we might actually do a new version. So everybody go update, go update, because
0: yes, still have Flash
1: out there. So it's uh, nearly 27. Speaking of updates.
0: Yeah. uh, Apparently JPEGs and PDFs and font files can still hijack your Apple Mac, an iPhone, or an iPad. That doesn't sound very good, Alan. Is this getting Uh, patched?
1: Yes. Uh, So you need to have iOS 10.1 or newer, and it addresses 12 uh, CVEs, one of which is Viewing a maliciously crafted JPEG file may lead to arbitrary code execution. Hmm. So opening a JPEG – so <laughs> this is this is the one we've always talked about. It's like opening a JPEG, it's safe, right? <laughs> See, this you is know, always – not like they just could embed a virus in a JPEG. <sighs> so basically, you could make one of these specialty JPEGs and tweet yeah. it. Now, probably Twitter would uh, resize the JPEG. Send and it in would... an email. Send it over yeah. iMessage. But, yes, basically you could MMS people this JPEG and, and root their
0: phone. Here's, here's what bugs me, though, is the only thing I'm seeing from Apple is a fix for Sierra.
1: What about? Uh, no, uh, iOS, uh, the link I have, this, the next link, is uh, the patch bulletin for iOS 10.1, which yeah. fa- fixes it on iOS devices. Right, but
0: on the Mac side, it, it appears they're only fixing the absolute latest version. Oh, yeah, of they iOS only did, support the latest version. But that version just came out like two weeks ago. Like, oh. how can you not... How come you haven't updated yet? You're an
1: Apple fanboy, right? Oh,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got to run it on all these Macs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all these Macs in the studio. Um,
1: you mean, so Sierra, that without some updates uh, would crash if you tried to access NFS, right?
0: Yeah. Yep, that one. That's the one. It just seems
1: <laughs> like, it seems like
0: you, again, the middle finger to pro customers, because pro customers aren't jumping what, on every release that comes out. Even in
1: FreeBSD, where you don't pay us for any support, we support the old version for three months after the release of the new version to give you a reasonable window to upgrade. Okay, so it looks like,
0: according to Apple, if you're on an older version of Mac OS, they're going to provide some WebKit updates. So you have to go get Safari 10.0.1 if you're on an older version, which is available for Yosemite, El Cap, and Sierra. So
1: Sure, but that only affects your web browser. What about other programs yeah, what versus about, JPEGs? Yeah, yeah. What, what about looking at JPEGs on your hard drive? Maybe that's not as big of an attack vector, but...
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what if you use QuickView to view a JPEG from Finder? Or what if you open up an email and does Mail use that version of Safari you download? I would like somebody who might have a little more information on how macOS works in that regard to let us know. So this seems like kind of a big deal, boy. The Register is killing it for the roundup today. Every LTE <laughs> call, text, etc., can be intercepted, blacked out, according to at least this hacker at a presentation. Ruxicon. Is that how you think you say it? Ruxicon
1: just ruxcon
0: rux oh man i like mine yeah you're right yeah, anyways that's where this this cut talk was given at and where they say that uh, holes were blown in 4g lte networks by detailing how to intercept and make calls and sex send text messages and sex you even force the phones offline altogether. hmm
1: yeah this doesn't yeah, surprise me just, at all, uh, i can just target your cell phone and make it not able to use lte that that's a hell of a ddos though boot you off the network They've actually Mm -hmm. done some real nice digging here, too. Yeah.
0: Can create a denial of service attack against cell phones by forcing phones to go into fake networks with no services. This feels like something law enforcement would take advantage of, too, somehow.
1: Yep, You could isolate somebody's cell phone so they couldn't, uh, you know, call and warn people that the police are coming and so on.
0: We got ourselves a Debian security advisory for CVE 2016-1247, right? So
1: this one's interesting. So this is a flaw that didn't exist in NGINX, but was added when... Debian Package NGINX the Debian way instead of the NGINX way. Oh, what did they do? Uh, But they introduced a problem with the log rotation that would allow privilege escalation.
0: Oh, I see. The security update changes the ownership of var log NGINX directory root to root. In addition, var log NGINX has been made accessible to local users, and local users may be able to read the log files themselves. Oh, okay. Until the next uh, log (laughs) rotate invocation. Interesting. So they messed around with the log permissions, it looks like.
1: Yeah, and... uh, caused problems for NGINX. It's like, this didn't exist in NGINX, but they added the vulnerability when they were backporting patches and so on. This next one
0: is disappointing to see, but not unexpected. Google has quietly dropped the ban on personally identifiable web tracking data that they committed to when they picked up um, DoubleClick back in uh, 2007. Uh, They said it was going to be uh, one of of their commitments, but now uh, that got really inconvenient. So they've dropped a line that said, we will not combine double-click cookie information with personally identifiable information unless we have your opt-in consent. That's gone now. I guess not too unexpected. that they, If they get the sea of data, they're, of course they're going to combine it. They've already been dropping that stuff, those distinctions between their other services too. But it gives Google a lot of insight because those double-click cookies are on a lot of websites. That's a big buy for them. Yep.
1: Row Hammer. No, it's not a James Bond villain. Apparently it lets you bit right, flip so we, to root. We talked about Row Hammer before where basically memory in RAM is laid out in rows. And if you hammer on a specific spot, you can cause the spots near it to bit flip. Uh, and you could potentially use that to take over a machine if you crafted it just right. And it was very theoretical. But now these guys have actually got it working on an Android phone to root the phone.
0: Okay, not too surprising. It looks like they're able to do phones from LG, Samsung, and Motorola, and uh, also some of the Nexus so, phones, but not all of an them. an app
1: with no permissions, hammer on the RAM for a while, and then root the phone.
0: Yeah, so Nexus 4, Nexus 5, uh, the uh, LG well, G4. Think
1: this this is attack is basically against the hardware. So mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the ver- what, what OS you run on it doesn't yeah. really matter.
0: No, I mean, my point is these are the ones they've tested on. And mm-hmm. so what, they all, what, the, what the researchers have also done, if, I mean, take, do this if you want, but they've released their own Android app that you can sideload and then test your hardware as, and become part of their data set to try the different ARM chips and their memory management and see what breaks. It's kind of a neat idea, although kind of creepy, too, to sideload something like that. But I guess they were trying to get it in the Play Store, and uh, Google hasn't turned it live yet. We'll see if that actually happens. I don't know. So what's uh, – have you seen this? Because I actually think I tossed this in here, and I wasn't sure if you had a chance to see this one. That it looks like – A little bit. Yeah. So it looks like there's a path name bypass flaw for TAR. Is that yes.
1: right? So that, they, they, uh, they did a nice job with this one. This is from FSecure. Uh and uh, they made it look like a, um, a Snowden document, <laughs> right? So there's like CSS, pointy feathers, tar, extract, path name, bypass, CV, 2016, 6321. <laughs> but it's like vulnerability, pointy feather. <laughs> and then you have the credits and the date, impact, file overwrite in certain situations. Uh, but then it's like Nordic eyes only, no foreign, public, exploit global. <laughs> Threat level manatee. <laughs> nice. Good callback. It's a, uh, in this time when zero days are hoarded in exchange for local currencies in different parts of the world, Fsecure CSS is going old school and dropping a not-so-valuable vulnerability for free as in beer. Uh, they found a problem where uh, GNU-TAR will happily extract files and directories into an arbitrary location when supplied with a, a suitably crafted archive file. If a target system is extracting an attacker-supplied file, the vulnerability can be exploited to gain file overwrite capabilities. When having uh, exploited this vulnerability in an environment where TAR was run as root to gain root access on the target, in most scenarios, this is a non-issue However, As we have witnessed corner cases, it can be quite useful. After communicating with different parties, uh, um, it was uh, discontinued uh, for more than 42 days. The discussion uh, was made to proceed with our honorable disclosure policy. Okay. Oh, TAR. Oh, TAR. Yeah, an attacker can create a specially crafted TAR archive file if extracted by the victim will replace files and directories the victim has access to in the target directory regardless of the path name specified on the command line. So you tell TAR, hey, extract the files over here and it overwrites files in your current directory even though you didn't (laughs) tell it. (laughs) Okay.
0: So why don't, we, uh, why don't we end the roundup on a birthday, no, not Hillary's, a birthday of the Bug Bounty, which just celebrated his 21st birthday. You can drink now.
1: Yes. Uh, so uh, as far as is known, um, Netflix – or sorry. Uh, Netscape. Netscape. Netscape was the first company to have a Bug Bounty program for Netscape Navigator, which eventually became Firefox, uh, and that was 21 years ago today. Wow. Well. Kind of cool that it was
0: Netscape Navigator
1: 2.0 beta that
0: uh, was uh, maybe, from what we can tell, the first Bug Bounty. That's kind of awesome that it was Netscape. There you go. Happy birthday to the bug bounty. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 290 of the TechSnap program. If you want to get a story in our roundup, go to techsnap.reddit.com. If you want to get a question into our feedback, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. And I encourage you to check our live calendar because not only are we going to be live next week, but there will be some changes coming up to accommodate for MeetBSD. So stay apprised of all of it at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar where the lifetime also gets converted to your local time and then you plug in jblive.tv to your browser of choice and boom you're watching alan and chris do the show live with all of the itty bitty bits between the segments which is sometimes the best stuff i'm just, I'm just saying i'm just saying thanks for tuning in this week's episode of tech snap and we'll see you right back here next week